Welcome to the Introvertpreneur Podcast. Take a breath because you are in the right place and you can finally stop apologizing for being an introvert. I'm Tara and I've discovered how to thrive as an entrepreneur while being 100% true to myself. Now I want to help you do the same. In these episodes, you're going to find everything you need to build a successful service-based business so you can stop competing with extroverts and grow and market your business with ease. Are you ready? Welcome back to another episode of the Introvertpreneur Podcast. I am joined today by Daniel C., who is the co-founder of Spacemakers, which is a productivity consulting group for busy leaders. His book called Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age, won the Australian Business Book Awards in 2021 as the best personal development book. He is also a trainer, coach, and keynote speaker. He also has many productivity-related courses, and I love these names, Email Ninja, List Assassin, Priority Samurai, with over 20,000 students, both online and offline. I am so excited you are here. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Tara. It's great to be here. I am so excited to learn more about you and dig into your book and everything that you do. So I would love for you to share a little bit about your story and how you got started in your business. So look, I live in Hobart, Tasmania. For those who haven't been to Australia, that's right at the bottom of the world. It's the island at the end of Australia. And I used to be a physiotherapist and I worked in that field for about a decade and moved into management and then senior management ended up doing projects. And through that process, I had this, I suppose, realization a few years into management that I had been trained in anatomy and physiology and biomechanics and had done all this study around assessing physical movement and how to treat patients. Yet almost all of my time as a manager leading a physio service was nothing to do with my training. I was reading and responding to emails constantly and in back-to-back meetings and organizing projects and to-do lists and dealing with conflict and managing teams and staff. Do you know what I mean? And none of that was what my training was about. I suppose I started to get excited about this idea of learning this new profession, learning to manage yourself, uh, learning to manage others and culture. And productivity became the thing I became passionate about, realizing that actually, if you can think about how you work, not just what you do, but change the way you work, shift your habits, then it can tremendously improve the way you live and open up opportunities well beyond your current profession. So I ended up looking at the research. I've got a science background. So I read lots of articles about the research of email. I know that's pretty geeky, but I started to learn, wow, there are some ways to improve the use of email, particularly dealing with high volume. And I created this little course called Email Ninja. We had a few whiskeys one night and ended up with this course. I basically went to a a training provider and said, I've got no skills in training, no qualifications, but do you want to take this Email Ninja course? And they said, if you can get eight people to register, we'll run the course and we'll get the feedback. And I had eight people register. At the last minute, I got my eighth person and they loved the course it wasn't very good at the time. It's much better now. And then Email Ninja became a course. And eventually I just had so much work that I had to make a decision about 
do I continue in business, make this a business, or do I continue with physiotherapy? Eventually, the story is I lead a business now called Space Makers to help busy people make space in the clutter of life to help them shift the way they live and work and rethink what it means to be busy in this hyper-digital age. It's so important too, especially entrepreneurs. I feel like if you're just starting or building up your business, like there's so many things that you have to do that even just thinking about the email, like every day I wake up and I have 200 new emails. (laughs) So maybe I need to take your course. Yeah. Look, email hasn't gone away. I mean, we started this course 10 years ago and I've got, I think 15,000 students just on Udemy because we recorded our live training and made it an online course. And I still run it for teams live or through Zoom. But email just hasn't gone away. I was quite worried for a while because we had so much work through Email Ninja. And I was like, well, what happens when Slack takes over or some other digital communication method takes over? But email is incredibly resilient. Actually, there's nothing on the market that I see that will actually replace email. And I think it's helpful to have these other communication channels. And there are times to reduce email volume in order to use other channels. But the reality is email is here to stay from what I can see, at least for the time being. And if you've got high email volume, you need a strategy to deal with it and to spend less time on it. I was trying to envision like what could actually take email's place. And I think you're right. I don't see it ever going anywhere. It's been such a continuous thing for so long. And even though there's ways to make it easier, so many people still struggle with managing their inbox and just the overwhelm of the volume of emails you can get. Yeah, look, it'd be fascinating to see what happens. I mean, what I'm actually seeing post-COVID is people are quite aware that the volume of digital communication has gone up because so many people are working at home, which is fantastic. You get flexible working, you get lots of autonomy and you don't have to commute, but people have to communicate more online than they ever have before because they're not having those corridor conversations and those ad hoc decision-making conversations when they're in the office together. So email volume is going up, but so is the volume of Slack and other forms of communication in groups and and so is instant messaging. We need these skills more than ever before to unplug and switch off and make sure we're not constantly responding to notifications day by day. We're not just living our life shaped and determined by what happens to pop into our inbox or what happens to come up as a notification. That's so true is to make space for yourself too, like notifications, new emails as they come up. I find that With all of this coming in at once, sometimes it just feels like you always have to be on. Like you see an email come in and you feel like you have to action it right away, or you get a notification on your phone from Slack and you're like, oh, I need to do this right now. So I love that you've created a better way for people to manage their digital landscape because it can definitely get overwhelming if you don't start to develop that skill. And it's not really something that's taught either. It's just like, even in corporate, I remember my last corporate salary job, we were never trained about email. It was just like, here's your inbox. Everything just suddenly starts to come through and you start to feel like you're scrambling because there's just so much. Well, I've been often think about the analogy of you'd never give a child a car keys and say, here you are, good luck. <laughs> you know, And yet when you become a worker, They give you Outlook and they say, here are the keys, good luck. Yet for a manager, you can end up spending a third or even half of your time reading and responding to emails. And there's no other 
I can't imagine another area of life where a particular tool would take up a third of your time and you wouldn't get any training into how to use it efficiently. So, I mean, the Harvard Business Review found that if you can just improve your email efficiency by just 10%, you buy back two work weeks per year of lost productivity, which makes sense because you spend so much time on it. I love uh, Stephen Covey's work where he talks about the gap between stimulus and response. So that's where you find maturity and that's where you find... I suppose, intentional living, that if you can create a gap, a pause between the stimulus that comes in your life, whether that just be someone's angry reaction and your kind of quick response, or whether it be an email that comes into your inbox and your decision not to do it straight away, it's in that gap where you get to think and plan, particularly as an introvert. We need that time to reflect and to work out, is this important or is something else more important? If you shorten the gap between stimulus and response, you end up just reacting constantly and allowing behavioral conditioning shaped by our technological tools and designs. We allow that to shape our day rather than allowing our compass to shape the day. With email, I mean, we just get people to create three folders, an action folder, a reading folder, and a waiting folder. If an email comes into your inbox and it takes more than two minutes to complete, well, then you move it to your action folder. And the discipline is that you delay a response to actions that take more than two minutes so that you get your inbox to zero. Then you make a choice whether or not you do that action there or then. That sounds very simple, but it's trying to create habits and systems where delaying that temptation to just kind of jump like a magpie at that shiny new email and react and let every new thing change the trajectory of our day. I hope that makes sense. And there's lots of other tips. And I'm not saying every time you get an email, you move it to the action folder. We also talk about having times throughout the day where you don't see any email at all. So we really recommend turning off all notifications for email, definitely not having a second screen for Outlook and not looking at emails in real time, unless your job description truly is to read and respond and react to every email that comes into your life like maybe a front of house office person who is the company's front face for clients. But there's very few jobs like that. Most of us need to have the ability to think and plan and do things that matter outside of email. So we need to be really disciplined in creating those spaces and disconnecting and not seeing all those channels of communication until we're ready to see them and we're ready to respond. What are your thoughts about, and I'm kind of asking this because I'm this kind of person, but I think there's a lot of us out there where maybe we need to change our habit around email because when we first wake up in the morning, the first thing we do is get our phone and load our inbox and see what's new. So is that something that you would personally discourage or like try to break that habit of doing that first thing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in my book, I have a number of different patterns. So the book is not about email. It's about making space from digital overload at a much broader level. But obviously, email is a very small part of that. One of the daily pause habits that I have, so we call them the space maker habits, is to start and end the day without your phone. So the habit is to charge your phone outside of your bedroom. And it's simply to recognize that like you've just recognized, starting and ending the day with your phone is actually a terrible way to start and finish the day. So when we're finishing the day, we're typically in bed scrolling email or looking at Instagram or TikTok videos, or we're playing games on our phone. You know, we'll be there, let's say with our spouse and having a relationship with other people rather than the person who we've decided to share life with. You know, no wonder we don't have pillow talk anymore. It's kind of 
a way of finishing the day just wired and allowing the worries of the world to shape your sleep. Then you, you wake up, like you said, your alarm clock goes off, which is your phone, and you instantly reach for whatever app connects most with your identity. And for me, it's a bit like you, it's work, it's Gmail. For others, it might be the news or it might be something else. But you end up starting the day immediately thinking about work and busyness or hearing bad news from around the world that just starts to cause you to be stressed or anxious about the ways of the world or seeing other people's beautiful bodies on Instagram or whatever it be. You know, it's a terrible way to initiate the day. If you can end the day by reading a physical book or writing in your thankfulness journal or just thinking about your day, I often just think about my day and I reflect on the feelings that I've had, the emotions, and I think about the interactions and how I interacted. So I'm doing metacognition. I'm thinking about my thoughts and my behaviors. So I'm reflecting on myself and thinking, what could I learn? What went well? What was hard? I'm a person of faith. So I pray and I give that stuff to God when I'm feeling stressed about stuff. And I find that really helpful. Then at the start of the day, I wake up and I think, again, it's an introvert thing. I think about the day that's coming up. I say what I'm thankful for. Sometimes it's like, I'm thankful that I've got a warm bed. I'm thankful for my toes. I'm thankful that I can breathe. But that's a better way of starting than to find out what's happening in the Ukraine. Then I think about the meetings that I'm going to have. I thought about this conversation and I wondered, okay, how might I speak to introverts? Because I don't normally speak into this space. So I think for introverts, we also need more thinking time and we need to create the space to know our own thoughts, not just hear other people's thoughts. All that starts by creating a gap, a pause of 10, 15, 20 minutes at the start and end of every day by charging your phone outside of your bedroom. So I know that's so simple, but it's actually really hard. It's actually a really hard habit to kick off because of the stories that shape our lives and the relationship we have with technology and the addictiveness of it. I don't mean to say it's simple, but it is easy to understand. I am so glad you brought up the end of the day too, because I know for me, it's so strange. Like I'm not attached to my phone throughout the day. It's not like I'm one of those people who's always got their face in their phone, but it's always the first thing in the morning. I always load my email right away. And then at night I am usually in my email or on social media or writing a blog post on my phone while I'm trying to fall asleep. (laughs) And I know that that's something that I have to do is leave it outside of the bedroom (laughs) because that's, I think the only way that I am going to really be able to break that habit. I'm so glad that I have a copy of your book because I need to dive into that (laughs) and read the entire thing. I think it's so important. For me, a couple of weeks ago, I posted in my Facebook group, I just had a really weird week where it just felt like a lot of stuff was piling on. And I finally realized why. So I posted in my Facebook group, I'm like, is anyone else feeling the same way right now? I just feel like I've been consuming so much in the last little while. And I have had no time to actually think or actually create for my own business. Like I've just been taking in way too much information. Yeah. So what you're describing is a classic symptom of what I call digital overuse. And I wrote the book because I coach a lot of leaders, executives, and I've examined my own habits and my own struggles because I struggle with space as well. And I've realized that actually most of us don't need more information. We are in this information saturated society where you get amazing podcasts and amazing audiobooks. You can hear from people all around the world. We don't even lack money, a lot of us, or even opportunity. We lack space. 
We lack space to think clearly and deeply. We lack space to reflect in our life and to know ourselves deeply. We lack space to think strategically about where we're heading and even the space to just sit and do nothing in silence and just be, to watch the waves in the ocean, to look at a tree and to smell the fresh air. Like it's that lack of hurry and that lack of being able to just be still. And that space is largely being taken away from us, not just because of the busyness of work, but because of our digital habits and because whenever we have that space, we habitually reach for our phone and we fill our mind with like more good information. There's a big difference between a person who is knowledgeable and a person who's wise. I think we're losing wisdom because the difference is knowledge is about input, but wisdom is about the input that becomes contextualized into someone's life where you start to work out how it relates emotionally and strategically and spiritually and you work out how that information relates to my life and how I might even shift and mold that information so that I have my own thoughts and my own ideas rather than just parroting off someone else's thoughts. None of that happens if we don't make space for deep thought, for quiet and for reflection. That will only happen if we reframe our relationship with the online world, if we create space away from technology and we relearn what it looks like to think deeply and to rest fully and to reconnect with people without a screen. And so that's the heartbeat of my book. It's not an anti-tech book. I'm online like you, 12 hours a day, 10 hours a day. I have a digital business. I'm on podcasts constantly. I'm writing blog posts. I'm doing email and news marketing. So we're in a very similar field. And yet I have very intentional patterns, simple things like not starting and ending the day with my phone or having a digital free meal to complex things like a whole day once a week without technology, which is my weekly day off or digital Sabbath to annual rhythms where I actually have three or four days off every year where I disconnect altogether. I head away and I really think deeply about who I am and where I'm heading. You can build those patterns in over your life and then still enjoy the best of the online world as an introvert, but it changes you. I feel like I'm living from the inside out rather than what I used to feel, which was just running to stand still, living from the outside in. Yeah, definitely. One thing you said too, it made me think of you know, how we're taking in all of this information. And I think a lot of people that I've worked with and talked to, especially because in our space, we sign up for a lot of digital courses and programs. So we kind of have a huge volume of them and maybe we go through them. Maybe we leave them sitting on our digital shelf for a while, but then we don't give ourselves the time after we go through a course or a program or something that we signed up for We don't give ourselves the time afterwards to just sit and think after we've taken in all this information and then to actually figure out a way to use it. It's just like we're taking in more knowledge and more knowledge. And it's useless. I mean, it really is useless. If you're getting ideas and not applying them in your life, well, then what's the point of it? Unless I suppose you're speaking on it, but that's still an application. In our training course, I've made the decision to put less content in our courses I mean, maybe it's because I'm an introvert, but we deliberately leave large spaces where we say, this is your introvert moment, write down what you're going to do and how it relates to you. So that at the end of any of my courses, like everyone walks away with a to-do list where they've reflected on what works for them, what are the actual actions they're going to do. And I won't let them leave the course unless they've put in the amount of time they need to implement them into their calendar 
Because in my mind, the point of a training course is to change your habits. It's not to get information and to say that was really interesting. So I'd rather people walk away having processed the information, at least to a point, and have a plan to implement it because that's what leads to change. And it's just that acknowledgement that I know as soon as people leave my training courses, they are just going to have 100 emails and messages and all the different things that are going to smash them and make them busy and distracted. And you'll never get more time to reflect than in the course itself. So that's where you should make the decisions. I read an article once that said training has a half-life of a week. So if you don't apply any of the practices or ideas that you learn in the course within the first week, you're half as likely to apply any of it the week after and give it two weeks and it's completely gone. So yeah, don't do a course unless you've got the space afterwards to apply something. Otherwise, you just don't get the benefit. Maybe that's a bit tough. I don't mean to be too rough on it, but I'm really passionate about helping people actually change their behaviors, not just learn information. I think sometimes for me, like all the courses I've taken, I find that sometimes that's the difference to me between a course that it was interesting and maybe I did learn something, but am I going to retain it? I don't know. Versus a course that was really amazing and really helped me. It's because it kind of baked in that action, those action steps and allowed me to actually make the space for actually implementing. So I love that. I did have one other thing to say and it completely left, but it was about, oh, how you said about how if you don't implement something or use it right away, you're going to lose it. And I thought about the French classes that I had to take in high school. I do not remember a single part of that French class. And I think it was probably two weeks out of it. I was just like, don't need this anymore. And that's how it works. Like one of my first jobs, I had to learn this entire, it was a really, really like a digital first internet age, this program. It was like a DOS program. And I had to learn this program. And as soon as I left the company, I immediately forgot everything about that program. Then I got hired back by the company a couple of years later. And it was like, I took a look at the program and it kind of came back to me intuitively. But I mean, that's something I would have just forgot about it. It wasn't something that was actually ingrained or implemented. Like if I was hired by a different company with a slightly different system, I wouldn't have remembered it at all. <laughs> That's really interesting. And do you mind if I move from that conversation to something similar, but slightly different about neuroplasticity? Because what you're talking about is from a neuroplasticity point, neuroplasticity is the term that scientists use that describes how the brain grows and changes and molds based on your habitual experiences and actions, okay? What you've described is when you were using the program regularly, you developed neural pathways, so parts of your brain literally wired together so that you became capable and started to use that program without so much effort. But then when you stopped using it and you stopped giving it attention, well, those pathways receded. It's almost like you had a well-worn walking path and then it became overgrown with trees and weeds and it was a bit hard to walk. There's still a path, but it's not very easy to see. Then when you started to go back and use it regularly, well, that path was there. So it's easier to carve out than had you not been there in the first place. I think that's really important when it comes to overload and digital overload and digital addiction, because one of the passions I have is to help people realize that we need to broaden the neurological experiences of our life and to train our brain to experience non-digital things so that we create those pathways, particularly when people are young, like when they're teenagers, to create pathways where people can enjoy silence 
and enjoy stillness and enjoy real relationships without a screen and to take adventures, to experience the breadth of activity that actually is statistically linked with health and happiness much more than being online socially. So the point, I suppose, of the neuroplasticity piece is to look at the challenges and the benefits of what we habitually do and to shape our mind in a way that leads to healthy behaviour. I used to play the piano, it's like your French classes, and I used to be able to play without sheet music because I'd practised 20 minutes a day. That's the most I ever practised as a kid. But I used to be able to practise 20 minutes a day and learn Chopin and Mozart, and my brain suddenly changed. So I had the ability to play without music. But I, I can't play any of those pieces anymore because I haven't played for 15, 20 years. What's interesting is I am now practising the internet 12 hours a day. The average American practices the internet 12 hours a day. The average Australian, 9.4, unless you're an office worker and it's more like 12 hours. And that practice is changing our brain, wiring it in very strong ways, as if I was to practice the piano 12 hours a day. Can you imagine practicing French 12 hours a day, how quickly you would be fluent at French? Seriously. That's why when you go to France and you have to practice 12 hours a day, you learn French much faster than in classes. And yet we're practicing the internet and that's changing our brain from an MRI perspective. It's changing the way we see the world. We're trading so much of the rest of life, the experiences that actually bring joy that relate to making space. And so I'm just passionate about balancing the scorecard again from a brain perspective. I never thought about it like in terms of children, teenagers right now, it's been ingrained in them since birth. I was lucky that we got our first computer when I was maybe 14. All my friends had to come over because I was the only one with a computer. It was the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> so I had those early years without any digital devices. I think we had Nintendo at the time. So kids now, they've actually been growing up with these devices from very young ages. Like this problem and not being able to make space is going to get, do you feel even worse as generations go forward? It is worse. Basically, Jean Twenge did this fantastic overview. She's a generational researcher and looked at the longitudinal data of the best studies in America covering people's mental health over a long period of time and their behaviours at the age of 17 years old. She found that something happened around 2009 to 2012 that just it completely changed the mental health landscape and she couldn't work out what it was. She looked at all these different variables. Was it the global financial crisis or war or migration? None of it matched up in terms of why young people are just off the dial anxious. They have mood disorders, depression, massively increased suicide risk factors. Like in a very short period of time, it's never happened in history, looking at like data from the 1930s when you look at generational change. Then she realized that actually population health and mental health in young people transformed almost overnight the moment the iPhone hit 50% saturation in the US market, which is 2011. So the problem I think is the jury's still out as to whether or not digital overuse directly causes the mental health problems we're seeing. But I can definitely say that by trading so much of life for digital technology, they are massively undercooking the things that make you mentally healthy, which are face-to-face relationships without a screen. So we are in real bodied relationships. Like that is a game changer for health where you're exercising, reading print media, religious activities, 
just walking and experiencing life and having adventures that are non-digital. All these are linked to making you healthier and happier mentally and helping you live longer. And young people have traded them all off. So I think you're right. You and I had a reference point where we could remember, hey, I used to use that program, like your example, or for me, I used to play the piano. Now I'm going to return to that when I realize I'm feeling drowned in digital technology. But if you've never had that reference point to life offline, where do you go? You don't have those neural pathways to recreate. And I think that's the concern. And that's where I say to parents, start slow and give kids lots and lots of non-digital experiences so they have a reference point for when they're older. It's not to say young people are worse or anything like that than us. I'm certainly not trying to say I'm an old man now. I'm 44. So I'm I'm not trying to poo-poo the younger generations. And there's some amazing things to them being online all the time. It's just that from a mental health perspective, their stats are terrible. And that is definitely different than when I was a young person. I think high school age, like they need to be taught these skills, the skill of making space. Like that needs to be in the curriculum. I know we always say over here in Canada that we're never taught actual life skills in high school. We're not taught how to cook. We're not taught how to manage money. We're not taught all of this useful actual life stuff. And I think this is one new thing that new generations, they're going to need. That's something that I think should be taught in school. Yeah. This is why I wrote a book on it. And I didn't write it for kids. I mean, I wrote it for executives and leaders like you and I, because I'm like, well, I don't want to jump too hard into the young person space. I can only write based on the research and experience of who I am, but it's exactly right. It is a new skill, particularly post-COVID, we're all in digital overload. And the only way to be productive and happy and healthy is to intentionally put boundaries on your life and your digital time. We haven't yet realized the benefits of intentionally making space from the online world in the way we understand limits in other areas of life. So for example, With health and fitness, we know that there's benefits in limiting your calorie intake and how much chocolate you eat. When you're driving, we know there's benefits to not driving too fast for the health of others. When it comes to debt, we know that there's benefits to setting limits in terms of how much you spend. Otherwise, you end up with credit debt. So that logic is everywhere. In reality, the only way to live a long-term healthy and happy life is to have intentional life-giving limits on the things that are good in your life so that you can experience more freedom. But we haven't translated that yet to this new problem of digital overload. Without a doubt, we have to set limits in order to increase our life and happiness. And it's a new set of skills, which is why it's called them the space-making skills. I 100% agree. If we taught young people to self-regulate, and to create spaces, but not just because technology is bad, it's because life is good. And there is so much good stuff that we can experience if we're not always on TikTok. And let's show people how to do that, to give them the experiences that make them really sing. I think if teenagers were taught that, then by the time they get into the workforce, if they already have that skill, they're going to be a lot less likely to fall into that kind of trap of way overusing technology, being way too connected to their device or even just to work, teaching balance is going to be essential because I find, especially entrepreneurs, we tend to get in that hustle mode mindset where we feel like we have to be on all the time. We constantly have to be working and showing up and marketing and doing all these million different things that are just 
a lot of the things we do just take up time. They're not actually benefiting our business in a way. They're just kind of, I don't know what the word is, but they're just taking up space from other things that we could be doing. This is where it's really, really helpful to have a mindset change. I spent more than half, I think half the book talking about the paradigm or relationship we have with technology, because unless we change our beliefs around technology, the kind of simple habits like don't check your phone at the start and end of the day, they won't stick because it comes down to our heart and our story. So it's just so helpful as an entrepreneur to recognize the context that we're in. When I train people in a live, let's say, a keynote, I'll pour water and I'll cough and I'll accidentally pour too much water. People will be embarrassed because the water will spill and then I'll just keep pouring and then it's clearly a gag. And water spills everywhere and all the OCD people in the room feel uncomfortable. But my analogy is that the glass represents our limited capacity to think, rest, check emails, drive kids to soccer and sleep and watch Netflix episodes. I mean, we only have so much time in our life. Oliver Berkman says we have 4,000 weeks. That's it. And if that's our capacity, well, then the overflowing glass represents the new normal in the digital age. And I don't think we're going back. Like people say, I'm busier than ever. That's it. It's never going to change in my experience. This is where I've come to the conclusion that from now on, there'll be more than we can possibly do, more than we can possibly put into our mind, more opportunities than we can take up. So if this is the environment we're in, you don't get the choice to cover everything. Even if you work longer hours and don't sleep, your glass will increase, but then the water will increase more. So it doesn't work. As an entrepreneur, as someone who's busy and always frantic, the key is to recognize I'll never get it all done. So therefore, what needs to go into the glass first? And what do I need to become content about sliding out to the sides? And so for me, I want to put in time to think deeply into that glass first. I make sure my annual leave goes in first before any work, any meeting hits my calendar. All my holidays are locked in in advance for my family and myself, where I have one day every week with no technology and no plans, where the kids and us just hang out together. That goes in first. It's non-negotiable. I don't care how busy my life is. I will not compromise that. The same with sleep, the same with exercise. You put in those things first, which don't take that much time, really, if you look at the fullness of your life. And that's all you've got. And you've got to work out the rest. It's a bit like someone with money who chooses to put away some money for their bills and some money for their mortgage before they even get to touch their paycheck. And then they live on what's left. I'd say the same principle happens with making space and time. So I think we do get a choice. We don't get a choice to finish everything on our plate. We'll never catch up and we'll never be ahead. And that's a hard reality to live in. But when you have acceptance of that reality, you can start to make the choices about what you put in first and then just trust that if the rest falls out, it's just life. I didn't get back to that Facebook kind of message, so I didn't finish my inbox. I mean, who cares? It just doesn't matter. I love that analogy. I never thought of it in terms of managing money and putting that away because so many people do that, but we're not doing it when it comes to our total space and time and energy levels that we have to manage. And I think it's important too, like you said, to know that with the amount of stuff and knowledge and content out there, you're never going to be caught up or check every box or check everything off. And it made me think, I always say to my husband, he always says to me, are you all caught up on work? I'm like, I'm never caught up. <laughs> I'm never caught up. Like I'm the space maker. I feel like a hypocrite. I'm always busy, but I like being busy as well. And that's part of the world. I mean, I'm a bit like you. That's Okay. 
but I do exercise five times a week and I do have time for my family and I do have time to think. I mean, I hate being so busy sometimes, particularly when I'm talking about making space, but I do think that's just the world we live in nowadays and no one's immune to it. Making space makes a tremendous difference in the quality of life in and around that busyness. And that's what I'm passionate about. I love that. Yeah. Making space and being okay and accepting that you're never going to check everything off or get everything done. And that's okay. It is okay to still be busy sometimes. You just have to accept that you're never going to get everything done. Some people I know they're so like, I need to check everything off my to-do list. And I'm like, do you though? You can move stuff. You can push things off to the next week. Other things are more important. You can push other things off. Definitely. I absolutely love this conversation. I think it's so important too. I think especially for entrepreneurs, especially for introverts, managing your time and where you're putting your energy is so essential with the digital world as it is right now. We're in it all the time on our phones, on our devices, and it can get very overwhelming. I'd love for you to share where people can find you online if they want to connect. So I'm at Spacemakers plural. So spacemakers.com.au, the AUs for Australia. And look, I'd love to hear from you if you're interested in this type of stuff. I do train teams in three hours to be an email ninja, get their inbox to zero. I train people in how to be a list assassin. So how to get things done with an online to-do list based on the getting things done type methodologies, but simplified. We talk about priorities in Priority Samurai and how to translate your big priorities into your day-to-day actions each day. And all of that can be delivered online. I also have a trainer in Toronto. So if you're in Canada, you might even get face-to-face training. And at the same time, we also have Email Ninja e-learning. If you're interested, just look up emailninja.com.au. There's a bunch of really helpful free videos to help you set up an action and reading and waiting folder and to teach you what it looks like to get started And if you find that useful, then obviously feel free to continue the course or contact me for more. Oh, and of course, please buy the book, Space Maker, How to Unplug, Unwind and Think Clearly in the Digital Age on audiobook, Kindle, ebook, et cetera. Awesome. Yeah, we will have all those links in the show notes for you all to check out. And I have a copy of your book. I am going to be reading it and making space. I'm going to start changing my habit at night. I'm going to start reading instead of being on my phone. and see how that goes. And if I can stick to that and charge it outside of the bedroom, then I'm definitely going to be writing a review blog post about the book as well. So I will share that when it is ready and done, but I've really loved what I've seen so far. So I'm excited. And if this resonates with everyone, make sure to grab that book and start reading and get off your digital device. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on the show, Tara. It's been really great to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. This episode may have ended, but there are ways we can stay in touch until next time. You can join me at introvertpreneur.com and at theterrorread.com, where you can find tons of blog posts and resources that will also help you grow your business. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at introvertcoach where I share more introvert-friendly and service-based business tips with you. If you love what you're hearing, drop a five-star rating and review telling me what you are loving about the podcast so that I can continue to encourage as many introverted entrepreneurs as possible. Until next time, keep using your introvert superpowers.